Okay, cool. Mark chapter 12, verse 18, and it reads, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take that wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven had married her, Jesus spoke to them. Isn't the reason why you're mistaken you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you read in the book of Moses and the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is most important of all? Verse 29, Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all of your heart, with all your understanding, with all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw this, that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. May God bless the reading and the listening of his word. I'll pass it off to Pastor Stephen. I just want to remind you of why we gather. Why do we do this? Why do Sundays matter? Um, when Jesus stood on the hills of Caesarea Philippi with the disciples, Caesarea Philippi was the darkest place in all of Israel and maybe the darkest place in the world at the time. And Jesus made this statement. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And since that time, the people of God have been gathering under the name of Jesus and under the authority of Scripture. We've been worshiping together. The Sunday gathering is just one piece of that church gathering, but it is important. And so every time we gather, something happens. Ephesians chapter 3, verse uh, Let's see, verse 10 says this. The Apostle Paul said, To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of God. 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, through the Sunday gathering, through the gathering online, through the gathering in your home groups, when you gather with a believer across the table and you encourage them, you invite them into your home, or you go to coffee with them, through that gathering, through the church, listen to this, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known not just to one another, not just to your city, but it says to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. There's something that happens when we gather that goes beyond what we can see, goes beyond what we can feel. There's something that happens when you, when you decide that you're going to get up, have breakfast, get a cup of coffee, put on some clothes, and move your body toward these other bodies gathered under the name of Jesus, under the authority of Scripture. There's something that happens, a ripple effect happens throughout the cosmos that declares that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we are witnesses to that truth. So as Jarrett was reading Scripture, we were proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus. As we lifted our hands and lifted our voices in worship, we were proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus. <clears throat> and you may be here and you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing. That's okay. You're welcome. But we, we are uh, a group of people who are surrounded by love and grounded by truth. As many of you know, I am currently splitting my time here in Santa Barbara with my time back home in Tulsa until my family can come be with us. And it's as difficult as you might think that it would be to be away from family. Um, <clears throat> this past week, I got to hang out with the family. I flew home after the Super Bowl, and my, my son Jackson, who is now officially a Rams fan ahead of time, uh, we were celebrating together, and uh, we, we got to go to uh, do all kinds of fun dad stuff, you know, read books together and, and throw the football together and took them out of school for a day. They got to play hooky and just, we took, just whatever you want, breakfast, lunch, dinner. It's, it's everybody's birthday today on Friday. And, uh, but as you can imagine, with kind of the back and forth nature of this current situation, which I embrace wholeheartedly, God's grace has abounded toward me and my family in this season. Uh, but it's been difficult to get some kind of rhythm going. I mean, many of you have your rabbit trails. You know what, you're, what th this week is going to look a lot like last week. Today is going to look a lot like yesterday for you because you've got your rhythms of how you like to do things. It's kind of hard to get into those rhythms with this back and forth. And so I've decided to embrace a couple of what, what we would call a rule of life with a couple of different things. So when I'm home, I read a book to the kids every single night. We spend, that's part of my rule of life when I'm in Tulsa. When I'm in Santa Barbara, my rule of life is this. I go to the beach every single day. Every day I'm in Santa Barbara, I'm going to the beach. Rain, sh shine, or if it snows, you better believe I'm going to the beach. I may go to the mountains, but I'm also going to the beach. And I'm going to the beach for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, goodness, how could it not fill your heart with gratitude that we get to live in paradise his kingdom has already come in part to Santa Barbara as it is in heaven. And so why not enjoy it? 
Um, but I, I, go, I go to spend time with Jesus to remind myself of his goodness. Last week we talked about this idea that the banner over you is beloved. I have to remind myself of that every day. And this new rule of life is, this new discipline is to do that. And I can't help but uh, share some of the things that I've noticed. Um, every day I go to the beach, I notice that there is uh, there are all manner of people who have their own rule of life, their own way of expressing their religion. I see surfers and sunbathers. I see volleyball players and spikeball players and people throwing the football. I see people fishing over the pier and people spear fishing along the shore. I see sailboats and canoes and paddle boarders. I see hang gliders and slack liners. I see people doing yoga and aerobics and meditation and meth. And I see, I, uh, not all at the same time, I don't think. I don't know if that's happening. I see runners and cyclists and skaters and inline skaters. I see people trying to get right, get things right, and people trying to make the most out of life. Honestly, I see a whole lot of religion in Santa Barbara. I see a whole lot of religious people. There's an interesting report that came out by the amazing uh, research company Barna uh, that listed the top 10 most post-Christian cities in the United States. Anybody seen this list? Uh, Joseph actually shared it with me. Top 10 most post-Christian cities in the United States. Guess which city is in that list? I made that list. Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, congratulations. You are the top, in the top 10 most post-Christian cities. Now, what does that mean? What's post-Christian mean? Well, post-Christian is a term that the sociologists came up with to define just kind of in general the, the mindset of the majority of the people of a city. So you think back to maybe the, the 1950s in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I'm from, there would be something called Christendom. In Christendom, sociologically speaking, whether a person really was following Jesus or not, if they put a little ichthus, a little fish on their business card, they got more business. Or, or when they went to get a loan at the bank, uh, they had to tell them what church they belonged to because there was cultural benefit to being associated with the name of Jesus or being associated with a local church. Guess what? That's not the case anymore in Santa Barbara, if it ever was. I don't know if it ever was, but it's definitely not the case now. Post-Christian means not only is there no cultural benefit in general from being associated with Jesus or the things of the church, it's almost the opposite. In fact, in many ways, people are suspicious of you if they find out. I can't tell you how, how much fun I have on airplanes when people find out I am a pastor of a Christian church. I mean, uh, the, bar the barista at the coffee shop all of a sudden is not so friendly to me anymore. There's a suspicion around this whole thing of following Jesus. But can I tell you, in spite of all that, if that's true, even if... Santa Barbara is more spiritual than they are religious. It's still religion. Instead of worship, it looks like a well-curated Spotify playlist. Instead of going to the temple or church for daily prayers, it looks like the F45 gym or hot yoga or Peloton. Instead of a pastor, we have therapists. Instead of community, we have gym memberships. Instead of Bible study, we have book clubs. Instead of a prayer retreat, we go on another vacation. 
people call it spirituality, but it seems to me that Santa Barbara is just as religious as any other place I've been. Religion is live, alive and well in Santa Barbara. Why? Why? What, what are people up to? Why is there still religion, though we may call ourselves secular? Why is there still religion happening? Why are people kind of acting out in this way and looking for rituals and looking for God and looking for heaven? Well, there's a one word issue, actually maybe two, sin and death. You see, despite all the beauty, all the, the, despite we have the fact that we have the best quality of life of any people in all of history, there's still something horribly wrong with the world. We still have this sense that it's just not working. And so we fall into these rhythms, and I see in this text today two philosophies of trying to deal with sin and death. Philosophies that are just about as human as human can be. Philosophies to deal with the problem of sin and death because we know something has to change. And we, we tend to look out there somewhere. If we had a better political system, if we had a better economy, if we had better education, if we had better technology, if we had better health care, the problem is out there. We try to solve it by looking out there to solve the problem in here. But when it comes down to it, we, re we, we realize that sin is not just something that's out there. It's not just a problem out there. It's an unavoidable reality that, that bothers us in here. And when we come to God, we come to him with the two most basic uh, sensations of being human, the two most fundamental things about you, the two things that you experience on a day-to-day -day basis, one of these two things you're feeling or, or, or experiencing right now, either I fear or I want. I fear or I want. We see that in Scripture, and we see that in these two episodes, the Sadducees who are coming to Jesus and the scribe who is coming to Jesus. And then we see the way that Jesus responds to each of these, and it tells us something about how we should respond to those two conditions, I want or I fear. A.W. Tozer says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Did you know that? What comes to your mind when you think about God fundamentally is the most important thing about you. When I was about four or five years old, we lived in Phoenix, and uh, my dad was taking a business trip to Disneyland. In fact, it was a big corporate trip. A whole bunch of folks were going. Uh, big uh, celebration for the sales team. They were all going to uh, Anaheim. They're going to ha have a big time. And uh, another, but, but to me, it's just dad's leaving. Where, where's dad going this time? Another business trip. What's happening? And so I asked mom, mom, where's dad going? Well, mom can't lie. She's like, well, honey, he's actually going to Disneyland. What? Can I go to Disneyland? She's like, I, you know, I don't know, babe. You'll have to ask your father. 
So I dropped to my knees right there in the kitchen. And I said, Heavenly Father, can I please go to Disneyland? You better believe I got to go to Disneyland. To my four or five-year-old self, my God was a father, a good father who loved me and wanted good things for me specifically. I couldn't imagine a God who didn't want me to go to Disneyland. What comes to mind when you think about God, when it comes to your deepest desires or your deepest fears? What comes to mind when you don't get what you want or when something happens to you that cause you, causes you to be wounded? When you encounter death or sickness or heartbreak, what comes to mind when you approach God? Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In today's scripture reading, we see these two kinds of people who come to Jesus with two completely different ways, neither of which are the way of Jesus. I know we heard it together, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them back up to the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 18 through 34. The Sadducees approached Jesus, and this is the last of these vignettes of Jesus standing in the temple court and the Sanhedrin sending people to Jesus in waves to try to discredit him, to try to get him to discredit himself, to try to trap him and trick him. Ultimately, there's flattery on their lips, we said last week, but murder is in their hearts. They want to kill Jesus. That's the agenda to move toward a riot of some kind or move to Jesus to, be, uh, to, to, to essentially hang himself with his own words. And so the Sadducees come, and interesting, it says the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. The Sadducees uh, had this, this problem, and this problem was their whole mindset was that they were right. Um, the comedian Mike Birbiglia said this. He said, I have a problem where sometimes when I think I'm right about something, it can be a real source of tension between me and the person I'm having a disagreement with. And the reason it can be a source of tension is I'm right. I don't know if you, uh, surely none of you have that, that sense uh, in your day-to-day -day or in your relationship with your spouse, but maybe you know somebody who does. The Sadducees were basically coming to Jesus and saying, am I right or am I right? They're trying to make a doc this doctrinal disagreement with a, the, remote, the most ridiculous and grossest literalism. They thought that the whole idea of resurrection would be mocked after this display. The Sadducees were an aristocratic party consisting of the high priestly and other leading families in Jerusalem. Jesus had been saying some troubling things about the temple to which their identity was tethered. Their income was directly connected to, just along, uh, as well as the Herodians and Pharisees and um, the Sanhedrin itself. So the Sadducees, a couple of things to know about them, they insisted on a royal king over Israel, particularly one who had jurisdiction over the high priestly family. And the Sadducees were these 
religiously hyper-conservative people, obsessed with being right. They were not the majority, but they were obsessed with being right. So much so that they, their Bible was only about this big. Their Bible was only five books long. The Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, that's the, the, the Sadducees' Bible. All this amazing scholarship had happened in the new temple where the, the, the reason we have an Old Testament is because of what happened in those days. All that scholarship that, that came up in the 400 years, quote unquote, of silence. All these scribes came together and they gathered around scripture and, and they canonized the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And when they did, the Pharisees wrote more and more. They, they, the Pharisees became obsessed with uh, preserving this way of life so that the Messiah could come. But the Sadducees had long lost their royal dynasty. And so they were just kind of a spur in the saddle. And they just were, they, they just were <clears throat> grumpy all the time. I'm an early morning person, and um, I love to wake up early. And I always, uh, you know, people, and, and I t typically wake, wake up in a good mood. And someone says, Stephen, do you ever wake up grumpy in the morning? And I say, usually I let her sleep. I can't, that's such a terrible dad joke. And I can't tell you how much I love that joke. But I do. I typically let her sleep. So the Sadducees were this grumpy people. Uh, and they most popularly did not believe in the resurrection. They thought you couldn't prove it. Now, interestingly, there are two groups of people that I think of that come to mind. Maybe there are lots more that come to mind for you that the Sadducees represent. To me, I think of both the hyper-Calvinistic cessationists, people who, if you're on that side of the spectrum, God bless you, I love you, you're welcome here. We just disagree on the works. The cessationists means they believe that the that the gifts of the Spirit stopped, that the, that the works of miracles are no longer available in the same way as they, are, as they were in the first century. The Sadducees believed that the voice of God, the canonized voice of God, stopped after Moses. So, so that's one group of people. The other group of people I think of are athe atheists, uh, secular, progressive atheists who are dead set that there is no God. And so they just double, the more you argue with them, the more they double down that they are right. The problem is they weren't right. As Jarrett so eloquently read, Jesus said, you are mistaken. And he says you're mistaken because you don't know Scripture. And he quotes a scripture from, brilliantly, their Bible. He shows them from the book of Exodus. When he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, he is quoting Exodus 3, 6. Jesus enters not through argument, but through agreement. He meets them right where they are. Jesus, wonderful, marvelous Jesus, 
does not contend with them in the same way. That he does not use the same weapons they use, the weapons of discourse. Though he doesn't overpower them, though of course he could. He invites them to see the God that they say that they love, that they say that they're trying to meet. They bet their whole lives on being right, and yet they were wrong. But remember, this whole problem of sin and death is not just something that's out there. We can learn something from the Sadducees wanting to be right. What part of your life needs to be right before you're right, before you're all right? Wait till I get my money right, then I'm going to be all right. Wait till I get my body right. Wait till I get my diet right. Wait till I get my skincare right. Wait till I get my wardrobe right. Wait till I get the right job, then I'll be all right. Wait till I get the right team, the right make the right hire. Wait till I make the right connections and meet the right people and land the right deal, then I'll be all right. Then I'll be right. Wait till I meet the right person and buy the right house and the right car and have the right kids, then I'll be all right. Wait till I get my mind right. Wait till I get my mental health right. Wait till I get my physical health right. Then I'll be all right. Wait till I find the right friends. Wait till I find Mr. Right. What is it that you think has to be right before you're right, before you're all right with God? Do you notice that Jesus, loving Jesus, just accepts the Sadducees right where they are. He says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus invites people who are trying to get their life right to surrender their life to the God of life. Instead, instead of running away from death and sin by declaring your own righteousness, Jesus invites you into the arms of the God of life. And the pathway, he says, is knowing, knowing him. Do you know that you can know him through scripture? Do you know that you can know him? Psalm 119 verse 1 says, how happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. I have treasured your word in my heart, Psalm 119, verse 11 says, that I might not sin against you. Verse 15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and think your ways and delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verses 35 through 37 say, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in them. Incline my heart to you and to your testimonies author of life, and not selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from trying to prove that I'm right. Turn my eyes away from trying to get things right. Turn my eyes away from worthless things and give me life in your ways. The second thing we see in this great commandment in this next section 
is that this scribe approaches Jesus. Now, scribes were incredibly intelligent people who had, were incredibly disciplined, the most educated, but also affluent. But they were obsessed with living well. They were often the philosophers who you would gather around and you'd find out, how do I live well? So instead of getting it right, they were obsessed with living well. Do you see the two themes? Getting it right is is, is a response to, I fear that I'm not right. Living well is a response to desire. I really, if I have to admit, I'm more in that camp. And as as an Enneagram 7, if that means anything to you, I want to experience everything all the time, all at once with everyone. That, that's what would make me happy, just to experience everything all, the, all at once with everyone. That's, that's all I need. Um, but the life of living well is also all around you. If the Sadducean approach is approach to being right, the opposite approach is to forget about it. Just forget about it. Just forget about everything. Just, just live a life of apathy. If we're all going to die and everyone sins, then just forget about it. I'm okay. You're okay. Just embrace the party life. That's what that I, I desire. Just whatever makes you happy. You are uh, the, your sovereign. You, yourself. Find out who you are, then go live that out. That's the number one virtue. That's the only remaining virtue in the West is that you are autonomous and that if you just discover yourself, do you know how much pressure that is? Do you know how that does not work? You have to define who you are and then you have to go make, uh, fill in the gap between where you see you should be and where you are. No wonder there's so much anxiety. But this life is appealing. It's the Jeff Bridges approach to religion. It's the dude. It's the Big Lebowski Jesus says, I abide. The dude abides. So just abide in the dude. Is that what Jesus is saying? Living well makes us, I mean, go to, go to any bookstore, and what's the biggest uh, shelf? What's the, what's, what's the biggest thing you see? You see books and books and books for, you said it, self-help, self-care. And I love those things, honestly. You should take care of yourself. You should learn to get better. You should embrace the good life. You should have healthy rhythms. You should go on a nice long vacation. You shouldn't overwork. But the, the life of living well, where just love, love, love is the ruling authority, it leads us to a bohemian way of life that guess what? It almost works. In the 12-step program, they have this saying. It says the hardest habits to quit are the ones that almost work. The hardest habits to quit are the ones that almost work. Being right, pursuing a life of being right, getting things right, it almost works a life of self-care, and just, just forget about everything. Just be cool. It almost works. It almost works. But it does not work. Ultimately, it falls short. So what's the answer? Jesus gives us a clue at the very, very end 
of this passage. When Jesus saw that this scribe had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Instead of living a life of being right, we fall headlong into the God of life. Instead of just que sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be, abdicating life to just whatever happens in culture, living, trying to live well, Jesus invites us to become a people of love. But in so doing, he stretches out his hand and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Reality Santa Barbara, can I tell you, the kingdom of God is closer than you think. You see, Jesus did not answer this guy in the way the American gospel would think, would make us think. Because Jesus, because he says, what's the most important commandment? Jesus doesn't say, oh, listen, I, I, I'm about to do away with the commandments. Don't worry about it. That's the law. The law is bad. I am good. He doesn't say, do. What do you mean, do? What do you mean do? You don't have to do anything. Just believe me. I'm going to take care of it in a few days. Just sit back. You don't have to do anything. Forget about the commands. That's not what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? He quotes the, the prayer that they pray daily, the Shema. Listen, Israel. Love the Lord your God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus just put the biggest command ever in front of these guys. We call it the great command. You can spend your whole life trying to do this command, and you should. But Jesus is saying, you're closer to the kingdom than you think. What is he saying? He's saying, disconnect from the stories of religion and of culture and upload your story into the story of the Messiah, into the story of redemption, the story of God incarnate, the, the story of God who came in flesh and blood and lived a certain way, who embodied loving the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving his neighbor as himself and who died and was raised from the dead and ascended and is coming again. That is the kingdom of God which is at hand. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So today, though we've covered a lot of ground, I just feel compelled to look you in the eyes and tell you the good news. The kingdom of God is closer than you think it is. You're closer than you think you are. When you feel yourself striving toward or away from I fear, or I want, and you feel like you've made a mess of your life, or maybe you feel like it's going really well, but it's just not working. It's not doing what you thought it would do, and so you just put another goal in front of you, and you achieve that goal, and the satisfaction has a half-life and another half-life, 
The kingdom of God is closer than you think it is. Jesus is closer than you think he is. Will you fall headlong into the God of life so that we can become a people of love? How do you do that? Just continue to be with Jesus. Thank you for showing up today. Thank you for gathering today. If you're in a home group, just keep going to your home group. Here's what I can promise you. We'll be broken people who love Jesus. Here's what I can promise you. We might hurt your feelings, but we want to help you heal your wounds. Here's what I can promise you. We will pursue the kingdom of God together. When you gather, you might hear the kids in the background, and that's okay. When we gather, we're going to lift up our hands in worship, and the person next to you may be singing way out of tune, and it might bother you. It's okay. It doesn't have to be right. The kingdom of God is closer than you think it is. Keep pursuing that kingdom, and he will make himself known to you. I want to invite the worship band to come. We're going to close today's worship service with an invitation. And that invitation is the words of Jesus. Don't you know the kingdom of God is closer than you think it is? If you came in with a heavy burden, maybe you're wounded. Maybe there's something you're afraid of, something that you're facing that's going to make you anxious about this coming week. Will you bring that to Jesus? Will you fall headlong into the God of life, surrounded by people of love? Will you lift your hands in worship, lift your voice in worship? If you're new to the reality Santa Barbara family, we've got some carpets down here. We've got communion down here. We welcome you to come. If you're comfortable, you can come spend some time with Jesus. This is a no-judgment zone. We are a family, and we just invite you to come and worship. Let's worship.